another great uh, chapter, Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may the table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather because of their transgression, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in 
for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. All the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And let all the people say, Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Cam Maxwell. Uh, some of you might remember me from the very distant past, back in 2020. I'm actually on the staff team here, even though you may not have seen me for quite a while. Um, I had to look this up. I actually haven't been here at the RSL for a regular Sunday morning service since October the 4th. Um, that was also a long weekend in the middle of school holidays, so I suspect some of you wouldn't have seen me since at least uh, September, which is a very long time ago. Um, there was a weekend away with youth, there was uh, a couple great weeks uh, off-site at Tonsley Hotel, and then the lockdown and Christmas, but here we are today, 14 weeks later, and it's uh, lovely to be back here with you all this morning. Um, just to explain as well, on October the 4th, my last week here, I'd finished our, our series on the Song of Songs, uh, it's the quite central part of the Bible. Um, and just to be cl clear, I haven't been trying to avoid you all since then. I didn't find it awkward at all. Uh, that's not why I've been out of action. Uh, but it is very nice to be here and to be looking at Romans chapter 11 today. Uh, thank you to George as well for reading uh, such a long passage for us. Um, if you're joining us today, perhaps for the first time, uh, and especially if the Bible is pretty new or perhaps just a bit unfamiliar or it's been a long time since you've looked at it, firstly, welcome. Uh, it's so wonderful to have you here. Uh, but I should point out, we don't normally read such long passages together on a Sunday morning. Um, it, it is a, quite a lot to take in in one sitting, isn't it? All that whole chapter we just read. 
so perhaps if you found it hard concentrating for those five or six minutes there and to take in all Paul was saying, uh, don't worry, you're not alone in that. Um, I did think about breaking uh, this passage up into a few different sermons, but the problem is it just fits all together so nicely, what Paul's saying here. Uh, so I'm going to this morning try and do my best to take us through uh, some of Paul's big ideas. Uh, it would be great, though, to um, have a look closely yourself, perhaps later today, read through the chapter again carefully uh, and see uh, that all I'm saying does line up. I should also add, uh, if long passages like this uh, on a Sunday morning aren't your cup of tea, uh, in a couple of weeks from now, I'm preaching on just two verses. Uh, so between this week and that week, if you average it out, we'll all be pretty happy, I think. Uh, we have been looking at the book of Romans for what feels like uh, three or four years now. Um, 2020 really did take a while to finish. Um, but it was only in August, actually, we started looking through this wonderful part of the Bible. At the last few chapters, we've seen Paul turn and focus on one particular issue, a major issue, especially for the early church. Uh, remember, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, which was mixed. It had uh, Jewish believers and non-Jewish Christians, or Gentile Christians. And this is the issue that Paul's been exploring uh, back from chapter 9. What about Israel? In the past, Israel were God's people. They were in an exclusive relationship. God had made uh, countless promises to them. He made promises to bless them and to have them as his chosen people, just them. But now, as Paul looks around and in light of Jesus, he looks around and he sees that God's promise to bless Israel and to keep him as his chosen people, the Gentiles actually seem to have all those blessings. And at the same time, the vast majority of Jews in Paul's day, they were missing out on those blessings, the blessings that come with being in Jesus. Um, so on the screen behind me in a second, uh, well now, um, you'll see how Paul starts unpacking this problem back in Romans chapter 9. Some of you might remember this. Uh, in chapter 8, there's a wonderful section where Paul explains all the amazing blessings Christians have uh, by being in Jesus. We're uh, adopted into uh, God's family and we're cherished and loved by him forever. We're his people, uh, Paul says. And then he gets to chapter 9, and this is what Paul says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple, worship and promises. Theirs the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Israel had it all going for them. They were favoured and chosen by God. And Paul, who is Jewish, uh, he is anguished because his nation, his people, had rejected Jesus. And so he goes on to say, and this is what we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 9, he kind of concludes, what then shall we say? It should be on the screen uh, behind me as well. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursue the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not as by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is, uh, he, he's describing they stumbled when it came to Jesus. Uh, he is the only path to righteousness, and they, they couldn't handle that. So in the early church, as Paul writes this letter, uh, yes, of course, there were uh, Jewish believers, uh, but Israel, the nation, they had rejected Jesus as king. They handed him over to be killed. That one path to righteousness made available to them, they rejected. And now Paul reflects, well, it seems Israel now stands outside God's blessings. 
and the Gentiles have those blessings instead. Now that question Paul's unpacking there, has God rejected Israel? I suspect not many of us have wondered about that a great deal. Um, did God reject Israel? Is that, is that a question that keeps you awake at night? Um, I reckon not many of us would have wrestled with that a great deal, uh, but if you realise what's at stake in that question, you might realise, yeah, this is, this is well worth thinking about. Remember, God had promised, he had promised to never reject Israel, never. Time and time again in the Old Testament, you see that promise. And so if he has rejected Israel, what does that say about God and his ability to keep his promises? What does it mean for us, and should we actually trust God uh, in his ability to keep his promises? Uh, This chapter, for all its detail and complexity, I think is all about God's character and his trustworthiness. I think that really matters for us, uh, because we want to be able to trust God, don't we? So it does, uh, does pay to work hard and think carefully about this passage, even a long and complex as it is. Having said that, I know we are not like the church in Rome in many ways, uh, but especially as far as I know, all of us are Gentiles. I could be wrong, uh, there may be some here with Jewish heritage uh, that I don't know about, and if that's you this morning, a very special welcome, you are very much our esteemed guest this morning, especially knowing uh, the passage we're looking at today. Statistically though, I would find that unlikely, uh, Adelaide doesn't have a very big Jewish population. So my guess is not many of us, if any of us, have had a spiritual conversation with a Jewish person. This this thought about God's relationship with Israel and and Jewish people might have never really crossed our minds. But does God still have plans for Israel? Has he actually rejected them? Has he replaced them? Um, Some of us may one day live in part of the world, like Sydney. I was there for a couple of years and there were lots of Jewish people near where I was living. There are parts of Melbourne, some of us may move to, and meet lots of Jewish people. How should, we as Jewish, sorry, how should we as Gentile believers interact as we meet these Jewish people? Do we assume they're saved because they are Jewish, even without faith in Jesus? Or do we assume that God has actually rejected the beyond, beyond hope? After all, uh, this is what Paul's question is. Some of you, of course, will know uh, the horrific history the church has had uh, in dealing with Jewish people through the centuries. Some horrific attitudes and actions And it stems, I think, from misunderstanding what Paul is saying here in Romans 11. Then, of course, there's, on the other hand, uh, some of us might just wonder, especially why um, some of, especially our American brothers and sisters, uh, zealously support the the nation-state of Israel as uh, some kind of Christian ideal. And we wonder, well, what does that say about God's plans for our world? Is that somehow tied up to a nation of Israel? Chapter 11, I think, helps us with all these things. As Paul asks this question, has God rejected his people? He starts by giving the very clear answer, no. No, he hasn't. Now, I find that a great comfort, actually, because, uh, well, for all sorts of reasons, but one of them is, I think uh, it's okay for me to say that you have a very clear answer, but I think the rest of the details Paul gives in explanation are slightly less clear. But what is crystal clear in this passage is that Paul wants us to know we can trust God. He is absolutely trustworthy, and he does keep his promises. And he does so because of his kindness and his grace. Um, Paul actually starts with himself as the first example here. So has God rejected Jewish people? No, says Paul. I'm Jewish. Uh, I hated Christians. I hated Jesus. God had no reason whatsoever to save me, um, but he did. Paul gives a second example. Well, what about Elijah? Some of you will know the story. Uh, Elijah felt like the last believer, the last faithful person in in Israel. He says, I am the only one left. 
The whole nation seems to have rejected God. But, even still, what was God's answer? And Paul gives it here in verse 4. God says, no, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So I want to point out the wording there as we go past, uh, that there are 7,000 who God has reserved for himself. See, Paul makes the point, just like Elijah, and just like in Paul's day, and therefore by extension in our day as well, when it comes to the nation of Israel, it's not like every single Israelite ever has been counted by God as his own. In fact, it has always been this way, that within the nation of Israel, there is a smaller number, a number God has chosen for himself, a remnant, a chosen, elected from among the nation, not every single person in the nation. That's what Paul's setting up here. Now, to give you an idea of this, if you have your Bible with you, or um, it'll be again on the screen behind me, back in chapter 9, this is verse 6, I'll put it up on the screen behind me, uh, thanks Rob. Paul wrote, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, I don't think I've ever come across a sentence quite like that before. Like, it's kind of like saying, not all fish are fish. You think, well, how does that, how does that work? Uh, imagine trying to say, uh, not all Australians are Australian. That just makes you racist, I think. What Paul seems to be saying is when God made promises to Israel, his promises are to his chosen, to his, his elect within the nation, not to every single person in the nation, not every single person of Jewish descent. Some, many in fact, disqualified themselves from the promises of God. So to help uh, perhaps picture this, I heard one person describe this kind of like a jam donut. Uh, You have at the centre God's elect, uh, God's elect of Israel, the remnant. Then you have the outer section of the donut, kind of like the rest of the donut, uh, that is the whole nation of Israel. God's promises and his dealings, uh, Paul says here in chapter 11, this is the way he has always dealt with Israel. Not every single Israelite, not the whole donut, but his elect, the centre of the donut. Just in passing, apologies to those who will now just be thinking about donuts for uh, the rest of the service this morning. Please join us for morning tea later. There's no donuts, but there's uh, other good things to enjoy. In Elijah's day, in Paul's day, and in our own, it might seem like uh, not many Israelites have turned to Jesus. Yet we're reminded here, God has chosen who he wants to. I think one of the things we see in Elijah's case is, well, wouldn't that be a surprise for Elijah? He wasn't the only one. There wasn't a handful, 7,000 God had chosen for himself. I think the point is, it might not be the whole nation, but it is a lot because of God's grace and his kindness. So if we know anything about Paul's own history, if we know anything about Israel's history, God had a right to reject every single one of them. But that's what God's grace is. He saves some anyway. And so as we get to verse 7 here, while the nation of Israel sought their own righteousness, they didn't obtain it. But the elect of Israel, God's chosen, well, it seems he gives them a righteousness that comes by faith. God gives them a righteousness. That's what Paul's been writing all through Romans. And so the rest of Israel, the the whole donut, the outside, as we've seen quite a lot here in the book of Romans, and in fact all throughout uh, the Bible, the rest of Israel, not the remnant, the, the rest, they followed a familiar pattern. They hardened their hearts towards God, and so God gave them over. 
he let them all, he even gave them hard hearts in response to their already hard hearts. And so they were cut off. Let me be clear, uh, what Paul is saying about the elect at the centre of the donut is that they weren't chosen or saved for any other reason, not their genes, not the good things they did. They were chosen and saved simply by God's grace. Again, if we've read Romans, we'll see time and again, no one deserves mercy, no one can claim a right to his mercy, not even the descendants of Abraham. But God is kind, and his saving work is always by grace, not any merit we have. Salvation is always God's work, giving us grace and mercy that we don't earn or deserve. And so knowing the history of Paul and the history of Israel, it is astounding, actually, to consider that God would save any of them. Why would he save Paul? It's extraordinary. Knowing as well the history of humanity and perhaps knowing our own history as well, I wonder if we're also astounded that God would save us, that he would show mercy to even me. See, when Paul gets to verse 11, he turns his attention slightly to something that is truly astounding. I think it's something that most Gentile Christians, myself included, we aren't often astounded by. God has chosen to even save Gentiles, even Gentiles, like me. I said just before, no one can claim a right to God's mercy, though perhaps Jewish people really do have a leg to stand on there. Gentiles, though, we have no reason at all to think God could or should show us mercy, no right at all, that he would make us part of his people, that he would bless and love eternally. But that is exactly what God has done. No matter our history, no matter our background, our genetics, our race, what we have or haven't done, for every single person, God looks past all of that and he offers mercy even to Gentiles. He offers salvation even to us. So in verses 11 to 32, it's quite a long section, but Paul starts with a question, well, are Israel, the nation, are they done? Is God finished dealing with them? Verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Now, I don't know for sure. I think perhaps he has uh, in this verse the idea of Jesus and his crucifixion in mind. How does a nation recover from a crime so offensive as killing God's own son? It's an outright rejection of God the Father. It's treason, really, if you think about it. So will they recover? Well, remarkably, Paul says, yes. Not only that, but their transgression, God will use to show incredible mercy, even to us Gentiles. Because Israel rejected and killed Jesus, Gentiles can have all our sins forgiven. His death means the forgiveness of sins is available to everyone, and so even Gentiles can be part of God's people. Again, not because of what we do, but his mercy. What's interesting is as Paul then talks about Israel, the kind of the whole donut, God's plans for Israel, it turns out God's pretty good at this mercy thing. Uh, He can even use Israel's rejection of Jesus to save Gentiles, which in turn will lead Jewish people to salvation. I think that's what this this kind of section seems to show, there's a kind of a pattern here. Um, It took me quite a few hours of reading and thinking about these verses, and um, I'd be lying if I said I know all of what Paul's talking about here, but I think what seems to be clear enough is Paul is showing us a pattern. Israel rejected God, we know that, so salvation has come to the Gentiles. Notice at the end of verse 11, that's not the end of the story. 
So God saves Gentiles to make the Israelites jealous. God's plan here is like a plan that's kind of circular. It sort of expands and multiplies salvation. It's extraordinary. I think you see this pattern in Paul's ministry. I'll point out in verses 13 to 14, uh, if you're still trying to get your head around this. Verses 13 to 14. Have a look at Paul's ministry. Paul was happily known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but his hope in verse 14 is that some Jewish people might see how good the blessings are of being with Jesus and be jealous so they might be saved. The Jewish people might see the Gentiles and what we have in Jesus, access to God, confidence of his love in our, for us, the hope of eternal life, of course being gathered into local churches to have a church family where we can love one another and build each other up, having lives that are completely shaped and changed by God's grace and just permeating every part of our life. So the pattern here, Paul hopes that by salvation comes to the Gentile, Jews might see those blessings Gentiles have and realise they want those same blessings that they might turn to Jesus and be saved too. That's the pattern I think we're seeing Paul explain here in these verses. Now, that's all great, uh, but again, why does this really matter for my day-to-day life as a Gentile? It's good to know this, perhaps, um, that God's character as a promise keeper is sound. We can fully trust him. Well, in these verses, you'll notice, as Paul explains the pattern, he also gives us three instructions uh, to Gentile believers in light of these plans. So if you see from verse 13, he's talking to us, Gentiles. First thing he says is, don't be proud, but be humble. So have a look at verse 18 there. Um, and then he sort of talks about dough and the roots and the branches. Uh, his point seems to be, uh, the big point, Gentiles have jo- joined the Jewish people of God. We have absolutely no right to be there. None whatsoever. Now, apparently wild olive shoots, kind of like the Gentiles... Wild olive shoots are known for never really producing fruit. They're a bit useless. Unlike a properly cultivated, well-looked-after olive tree, there's fruit. Gentiles, the wild shoots, left by ourselves, are fruitless and heading for destruction. Now, God saves us, but he doesn't just turn us into a new tree. He, He grafts us into the other tree. He doesn't save us in isolation. He plugs us into the Jewish faith. That is, we are saved into a Christianity with roots, with deep roots in Judaism. And so it's complete nonsense for a Gentile believer to look down on, in any way, a Jewish believer. Now, Gentiles feeling superior to Jewish Christians, that was a problem in Rome. Paul's trying to address that head on here. Uh, It has been a big problem all through church history. But as far as I know, uh, there isn't a big Jewish-Gentile divide here at Trinity Church Kernelite Gardens. So, well done, everyone. Uh, we're, we're doing a good job on that front. I guess the point here applies more generally then, doesn't it? If we're not a, a mixed kind of Jewish-Gentile congregation, I think the point is more general. Does the grace of God astound us? That he would make us hostile, godless people? Does it astound us that he would make us part of his family? Or do we feel like we sometimes have a right to be right with God? Perhaps it's our family background, we've got believing parents and we might, we might think that gives us a right to access to God. We might simply feel that God owes us uh, for the good lives we live. But when we know God's plans, when we know his kindness and grace, we simply can't be arrogant. We can't be proud or look down at anyone because God's grace, it always humbles us, doesn't it? that he would choose even me. That's the first thing. The second thing Paul instructs Gentile believers in is don't be complacent. 
Or if you have your hand out there, you'll notice I've spelt it, don't be complacent. Uh, so bonus points if you picked out this typo this morning. Don't be complacent. Uh, that seems to be the point here in verses 20 to 22. In case the Gentiles, people like us, if we hear about this plan, this pattern of salvation, think, well, Israel's done, we're in, and we're here to stay. The Gentiles are here to stay no matter what. We can do what we want now. Paul points out the problem here is that, well, look at Israel's history. That's what Israel thought. Time and again, Israel presumed they could get away with being faithless, that it wouldn't matter if they hardened their hearts, that God would keep from giving them no matter how faithless and how hard-hearted they were towards him. Because forgiving, that's God's job, isn't it? No, says Paul, learn from Israel's history. Don't get complacent. Don't let your hearts harden. God is kind and he's stern. And so it urges us carefully to think about both of those things. To not be terrified so much of God, but to learn exactly how he deals with his people. To see how he has dealt with Israel. Very, very kind, but he's certainly not a fool that we can just take advantage of. See, how did Israel fall away? And more generally, how do Christians fall away? Well, nearly always, it's slowly, bit by bit letting other things distract and perhaps uh, holding on to things in our hearts or our lives that we know don't please or, or honour God. Might be just worshipping a little bit too much other things other than God. You know, just between Sundays, we'll fix it every Sunday. Perhaps uh, we get slower and slower to repent of things or just perhaps uh, less concerned about our spiritual vitality. Paul says here, don't get complacent, learn from Israel's history. And after a year like 2020, perhaps uh, we're up to a point where we, some of us need to prayerfully consider our spiritual vitality or our complacency. Like I, we all know, I, I certainly do, 2020 was really rough on, uh, on keeping good habits, wasn't it? I found uh, the year made it hard to focus and keep prioritising on the right things, the hard things. Uh, but it seems to me as we start 2021, we're probably in for much the same ride in many ways. I don't think there's much point waiting for things to get back to normal before uh, we address our spiritual lives, if that's what we're waiting for. As Paul urges us, let's all consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Perhaps some of us are simply overdue for reflecting. Is my heart hard towards God in any way? Perhaps it's time to repent of some things we've been holding off on, uh, repenting of, for too long. Maybe it's simply reprioritizing some things we know we've let slip. Just getting back into those habits uh, that uh, 2020 knocked around a little bit. Bible reading, prayer, meeting together, those, those basic things that help sustain us. And doing that now before the year really gets underway. That'd be a great thing to do. So don't be proud, don't be complacent, and thirdly, don't be ignorant, uh, says Paul. Now, um, I hope you notice and appreciate the irony here. Uh, Paul says, don't be ignorant, in verse 25. Then he, as he finishes that sentence to help remove that ignorance, he says something that has sparked centuries of debate. Uh, about what he means by that. It's, it's quite an ironic uh, turn of phrase here. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, the thing there that sparked a debate and uh, continues to rage is, what does he mean by all Israel will be saved? Now, to return to our donut analogy, I suppose, is he talking about the whole donut? Every part of the donut will somehow be saved one day. The whole nation of Israel, uh, maybe not every single, literal, every single individual person, but, you know, generally speaking, nationally, ethnic Israel, will all Jewish people be saved? 
Or is he talking still about the inner core of the donut, the elect? You know, the idea not all descended from Israel are Israel, that kind of thing in minds. Uh, Of course, many Christians read this verse and think, yes, he means the whole nation. Uh, Perhaps at some point in the future, there will be a mass conversion of Jewish people right at the end of time. Now, I think that's a a possible and even a good way to read this passage, uh, and I think that would just be a wonderful thing. But I guess we don't really see that explained or or painted out anywhere else in Scripture, that kind of climactic moment for the Jewish people. Uh, So I think I'm kind of less inclined to go that direction. I think more to the point as well, when you step back and see what's going on in this passage, um, I think Paul's talking about uh, the way God is keeping his promise to his elect. That's how we started chapter 11, talking about how God promised uh, to deal with his elect and save them. To me, it seems this verse, uh, verse 25 and 26, it's a summary. It's a summary of what Paul has been saying in this chapter. Because he's not been talking so much about a future event for Israel. He's been talking about a process. He's been talking about a pattern of salvation for his elect, the Israelites. He's been talking about how God is going to save them and how God will keep his promise to never reject them. Part of the reason I say that, if you look at the uh, start of verse 26, it starts with, in this way, all Israel will be saved. That is, his emphasis is, I think, is not on how many Israelites get saved, the exact number. I think his, his emphasis is on the process, how God will do this. He's answering his original question, has God rejected Israel? He's explained, no, God has always kept his promise to the remnant, the center of the donut, as it were, not to every member of the nation. And so, as the full number of Gentiles year by year, for thousands of years, generation by generation, as Gentiles added year by year to God's people, in this way, the full number of Israelites, God's chosen, will be saved as well. I think that's what's going on here. Um, you might like to come and chat to me more about that. I'd be uh, very happy to c- continue that conversation. Uh, you may just be thoroughly confused about what this whole chapter is about at this point as well. So, either way, let me just be, try and be very clear on one particular point. Paul has gone to great lengths to explain it's only by faith in Jesus that anyone is saved, Jew or Gentile. So, whatever else we might say about uh, this verse 25, 26, well, we should keep praying for God to save Jewish people that they would hear the good news about Jesus and put their faith in him. That is the only way God saves. It's not through genetics. So when Paul tells us, don't be ignorant, I think he's insisting we don't be ignorant that God is kind, that he has not rejected his people. And I guess it's possible we sometimes feel like God has broken promises to us. We might have concerns about his goodness or his mercy. Why would he choose some but not others? Is he really good if he does that? Paul's urging us not to be ignorant, but to go back and read very carefully the Old Testament. Like Paul has done here, he's arguing from the Old Testament. He's seeing exactly what God has promised, and he's he's thought about the implications of the gospel. He's, he's, He's writing the New Testament. We get to read the New Testament and see very clearly that all of God's promises to Israel are yes in Jesus Christ. We see time and time again the kindness and the grace of God in keeping his promises to undeserving people like us. God has revealed all we need to know about him, and especially if you're thinking about these things for the first time, um, these spiritual things for the first time in a long time, maybe. Uh, We do hope you're able to stick around with us. Uh, This is an odd part of the Bible if this is your first week at church in a long time. It's an odd part of the Bible to jump straight into if you're new. Uh, Please stick around as week by week we keep looking at what God says about himself in the Bible, the promises he makes. 
Um, because we'd love to help as many people as we can uh, grasp how great God is, how kind and how gracious. That takes us to where Paul finishes uh, this chapter today. He's thought about how incredible God's plans are, how great God is. He's done this over 11 chapters now. And so he bursts out in praise uh, in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Now, this is the right way, isn't it? This is the right way to respond to Paul reflecting on God's plans for salvation by praising him. I mean, hearts that overflow with thanks and amazement and joy. There's no one else who could come up with such a great plan. From before even creation started, there's no one else who could pull it off. We might wonder why God doesn't do things differently or wonder if he's doing a good job. But when we stop and praise God, just turn to him in thanks and marvel at his saving ways, we humble ourselves and realize everything he does for Jew and for Gentile, everything he does brings him glory. Our salvation, the future of Israel, the future of our world is all about God and his glory. It's not about us. At the end of the day, God always works to make his glorious, kind nature known so that we can rightly praise him with our whole lives. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? A a wonderful celebration we can join in on, dedicate our lives to, a life of praise and worship of our good Saviour. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.